This is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I'm your host, Davey Crockett. Thanks. Thanks for coming. This is episode 49, part four in the Grand Canyon Rim-to-Rim History. In this episode, I will tell the story of the family that lived down at the bottom of the Grand Canyon for 33 years. Well, I'm somewhat of a hermit. I... No, they weren't hermits. They raised three children down there. Wow! And now a word from our sponsors. Guess what? I released another book that I think you will really enjoy. What? Grand Canyon Rim-to-Rim History. It is a must-read for anyone who has run rim-to-rim or plans to in the Grand Canyon. It presents a 130-year history of the rim-to-rim hikers, runners, trails, bridges, Phantom Ranch, and other things you will see on your run, packed with more than 400 photos. You will read about the plane that landed near Indian Garden. I'm sorry, what? The man who rode his bike across the canyon, and dozens of early experiences crossing the canyon during the early days. I scoured through thousands of old newspaper articles to write this book. Get Grand Canyon Rim-to-Rim History on Amazon. Will do. When people ask me where I want to live when I retire, I usually say, at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. My wife's reply is always, you will be going there alone. (laughs) I guess one can only dream, but Bruce Aiken made his dream come true. For anyone running rim to rim in the Grand Canyon, most people will usually stop at a location about a mile below Roaring Springs that today is called the Manzanita Rest Area, named after a creek coming down a small nearby side canyon. But the name and the rest area are a fairly new one, a 2015 creation. Newer visitors have no idea that there is a rich history that took place at that location from 1973 to 2005. For veteran rim-to-rim hikers and runners, they still call this place fondly the Aiken Home. Yes, a couple lived there and raised three children in the depths of the canyon for more than three decades. The Aiken family made a deep impact on rim-to-rim history by helping, greeting, and even feeding thousands of visitors over the years. Bruce Aiken managed the crucial water system at nearby Roaring Springs completed in 1971, see episode 48. And Mary Aiken taught and raised their children and also assisted hikers. Who were the Aikens? How did they come to live in the canyon? What was it like for three energetic children to spend their childhood in the canyon away from many modern conveniences and normal entertainment and childhood friends? What was life like for them? Their tale is now almost forgotten and evidence that they lived there has been replaced by a rest area and ranger station. But when I visit that amazing spot, I always think about the Aiken family and visualize the unique people that lived there for so many years. Bruce Aiken was born September 10, 1950 in New York City's Greenwich Village to Richard and Margaret Aiken. The family moved to Long Island where young Bruce started to draw and paint with his mother, who was an accomplished artist. When I was a little kid growing up, Um, I knew that I was drawn to the creative world, and um, I've never left. 
They often went on vacations to Arizona to visit his grandparents and cousins. A 1963 visit to the canyon had a deep impact on young Bruce. In 1968, Bruce graduated from high school and was voted most talented. Following in his mother's footsteps, he was interested in art and enrolled in New York's prestigious School of Visual Arts. Aiken attended the art school for only two years, saying, I got caught up on the things happening in the 60s and decided that what I really wanted to do was live in the West. I fell in love with Arizona during my visits and knew I wanted to live there. I came to Arizona when I was 20 years old and never looked back. Uh, I was pulled by um, a vision I had for an adventure, searching for my muse. I was pulled by the need for um, nature, and I found um, Arizona to be rich in all of those things. In 1970, he hitchhiked west, landing in Phoenix, enrolled in Phoenix College, and took courses in geology, ecology, and painting. He lived with his grandparents and cousins, who thought he was the, quote, wild, crazy, hippie cousin from New York. In November 1970, Bruce hiked down into the Grand Canyon for the first time to Phantom Ranch. He also hiked in many other places throughout northern Arizona and said, my goal was to embark on a life that was beautiful, dynamic, and as above average as possible. Mary Catherine Shields of Seattle moved to Phoenix in the late 1960s. She wanted to get away from the rain and gain her independence. In 1971, she met Bruce at Phoenix College, where she was a nursing student. Bruce persuaded her to share a motorcycle ride with them and their relationship started. Bruce was so impressed with the Grand Canyon and knew he wanted to live there. In March 1972, he joined a friend to head to the canyon to work construction at the nearby town of Tucson. They camped in the woods near Hermit's Rest. He said, I felt like I had arrived at the ultimate destination. The only people allowed to live in the park at the time were park employees. So a month later in April 1972, he hired on with the National Park Service to work on the trail maintenance crew at the North Rim. He visited Roaring Springs down North Kaibab Trail and was captivated by the house there. There was a white picket fence and a large porch fronting a white clapboard rambler whose cedar-shaped roof was covered with moss. I didn't know how to respond. It was so stimulating, so exciting. It spoke to my heart. It was what I was looking for. This two-bedroom house was built in 1927 and was referred to as the Pump House. It was built when the North Rim water line was constructed along with a stone powerhouse building to generate electricity for the pumps to push water up to the North Rim. Seasonal part-time caretakers would live in the two-bedroom pump house, maintaining the system and nearby trails. Once the Trans Canyon Pipeline was finished in 1971, sending water also to the South Rim, it was soon determined that a full-time water system manager would be needed to watch over the system and do the constant repairs needed. In the fall of 1972, Bruce returned to college, attended University of Arizona in Tucson, and soon married Mary. He wasn't happy going to school and convinced Mary to follow him on his dream and head back to the Grand Canyon. In 1973, he hired on with the general maintenance crew. Bruce, Mary, and their infant daughter, Mercy, moved to the North Rim and lived in a cabin. Bruce got to know Wendell Siegmiller, who maintained the water and electrical system at Roaring Springs during the spring of 1973. 
Bruce saw his chance to fulfill his dream to live at Roaring Springs when he realized that the Park Service would be hiring a full-time water system manager and that Siegmiller would likely leave for another position. Bruce learned a little about the system from Siegmiller and when the job became open, he somehow convinced the national park managers that he had the mechanical background to do the job. He fooled them and got the job in July 1973. Bruce said, I don't think Mary knew what to expect when I told her we were moving to the bottom of the canyon. I think she was in shock. Are you crazy? I just knew that I could think of no other place I would rather live. In 1973, the Aikens descended 5.5 miles and 4,000 feet on mules with their belongings and moved into the pump house. Mary thought, where is this guy taking me now? I thought it was really amazingly beautiful, but in the back of my mind I was thinking, we won't be down here very long. Bruce was worried about his new job and said, I was terrified that I might not live up to my job, which included fixing pipeline breaks. I didn't even know which way to unscrew a nut when I started out, so I was consumed with figuring out how to test water samples and maintain and repair the pumps. I had to fool myself into believing I could do it, and then I had to do it. In this three-year period before I started to paint, I had to figure out how to run the water system at Roaring Springs. And honestly, I had no idea at all what I was doing there, even though I had told the Park Service that I knew. He pored over blueprints to figure out what to do if the pumps broke down. Two others initially assisted him. We had one bedroom and our baby, with two other guys in the other room working and living there. Bruce's job was to oversee the system eight to ten months a year, ten days on and four days off, which eventually gave him time to explore and learn about the canyon. Each day at Roaring Springs, Bruce would run the trail from his home to the pump station at the base of the springs four times a day, including back and forth for lunch. After a year in the canyon, Shirley was born in 1974. No, not at Roaring Springs, but in Phoenix, Arizona. On off months, the family would leave the canyon and spend most of their time at the South Rim. In 1975, after two years in the canyon, Bruce returned to his art. He had spent those first two years researching the canyon's characteristics, such as botany and geology, sketching only with pencil and charcoal. He said, But the easel kept calling me back. It was a spur-of-the-moment thing. It was just as if I had finally gotten to the point where I really understood the place and could put it down on canvas. It took me probably three years or four years of living in the canyon before I finally got to the place where um, I felt even comfortable um, with paint. Uh, and I started to paint. Um, probably in the mid-70s there, I did my first, executed my first you know, oil painting. He started painting remote areas that were hard to get to. Daughter Shirley recalled watching him constantly up at the canvas doing meticulous and detailed work, his face almost brushing the wet paint. Mm -hmm. Run, come see what this river has done. Carved the walls of Grand Canyon with the colors of the rising sun. And paint a picture of the promised land in that limestone rock and sand. 
yeah Run, come see what this river has done Life was simple and amazing for the family at Roaring Springs. Bruce said, I had never been a guy who cared about shopping or movie theaters or crowds. Life in the canyon got better every year. They of course had no TV and mail came only every two weeks, but they could listen to 3 a.m. radio stations only when they faded in at night. About the many visitors that passed by on the trail, Bruce said, I knew they were going to ask me if I lived here how I got my groceries, and whether or not I ever got bored. So I always started right off with those three responses. It took Mary about three years to totally feel comfortable living down in the canyon. But one day, while walking by the cliffs with the light streaming in, she suddenly felt part of it. She said, Wow, I'm so lucky. I never want to leave here. To know it is to love it. It has made me strong living here inside and out. The Aikens were always fearful of what would happen if they experienced an emergency so far from help. They had a phone line, but at times it would be out for weeks. One hot night in June 1976, the two little girls were sleeping in the front yard on a mattress. All of a sudden, at 11 p.m., little Shirley let out a blood-curdling scream. Mary bolted out the door and grabbed her toddler. She looked over her feverishly. What could have spurned a scream like that? Mary found no obvious trauma, but Shirley continued to howl in pain. Bruce searched the mattress and the yard nearby. Nothing. Even so, he suspected the unseen culprit. Shirley had been stung by a scorpion. Bruce followed the National Park Dispatch, but little could be done because the helicopter could not come down in the dark. But a doctor was contacted and gave them instructions on what might happen because of the venom and what to do. Shirley's crying had become uncontrollable as the venom circulated through her tiny 25-pound body. Abruptly, she launched into a grand mal seizure. Her entire body stiffened and she arced her head and neck backward for more than an hour, crying uncontrollably in between seizures. Mary was an emotional wreck and little Mercy was terrified looking at their little sister's condition. Shirley had a high fever that they treated with ice packs. She continued with seizures which sent panic through her parents. They all prayed hard. At about 3 a.m. things improved and the seizures stopped. Dawn arrived at 4.45 a.m. A helicopter landed and quickly flew Bruce and Shirley to the Grand Canyon Clinic on the South Rim. Mary stayed home with Mercy. Little Shirley received appropriate shots and by 8 a.m. she was out of danger. Bruce asked for a flight back into the canyon with Shirley to finally let her sleep. Back in Roaring Springs, Shirley did sleep for 12 hours. At 8 p.m., Shirley woke up to a canyon sunset. She strolled out into the living room, now crowded, not just with her family, but several concerned friends. They greeted the little scorpion sting survivor with a round of applause. Mary recalled, After the scorpion bite, I started to think, am I a responsible parent? Should I get them out of the canyon? But Bruce talked me out of it. He said there were dangers everywhere. 
1977, Silas was born, joining the young, happy family at Roaring Springs. Mary had hiked out of the canyon, nine months pregnant, wearing a bikini top, quote, capturing the attention of everyone she passed on the trail. Up the creek from the home, they dammed an area, making a little swimming pool for the family to enjoy on many hot days. In later years, when the children were older, they swam at a place on Bright Angel Creek they named Split Rock. It was between their home and Cottonwood Campground at a very distinct waterfall that you can't miss. At this swimming hole, they would leap off 20 feet into a 14-foot deep pool below. Mary compared sitting in Bright Angel Creek on a summer day as becoming a human version of a hot fudge sundae, cold on the bottom and hot on the top. Some of my best memories involve soaking in the creek while staring up at the cliffs baking in the summer sun. I would follow my soak by lying on a hot rock. At times the family would sleep on the Roaring Spring helipad and watch the stars. Bruce said, During the first monsoon rains, the kids danced for joy there. Manzanita Canyon was our backyard. The kids built forts there and climbed the walls where they discovered prehistoric ruins. Bruce was called upon often to aid collapsed or injured hikers. Very often, naive hikers suffered from heat exhaustion, (laughs) foolishly trying to hike rim to rim during the hot summer. They would stumble into the Aikens yard needing help. Bruce saw it happen over and over again, knowing what to do to help, and very often provided a place for visitors to stay for the night to recover. Mary took an emergency medical technician course and often helped hikers on the trail and was said to give the most wonderful back leg muscle rubs. In 1979, the Park Service constructed a new wood-framed 33-by-48-foot duplex cabin, half of which was used by the Aikens and the other half by the Park Service employees temporarily working in the canyon. The old 1927 pump house was destroyed. A new Roaring Springs pump station was also built below the cave with a new chlorination station. Bruce said, There was a veranda, a shake roof, a nice airy yard, and a big garden. We couldn't have pets because of all the wildlife. In 1980, Mercy, age 7, set up a lemonade stand beside the trail for donations. Um, Get your lemonade. It tastes great. We will not exaggerate. The stand was such a popular success and lucrative that it lasted for years. Hikers would mention to others they passed that there was a lemonade stand just around the corner. They thought it was a joke. But there it appeared. I got a lemonade stand, ten cents a cup. Come on over, you can drink it up. Soon their lemonade stand became famous. If the kids weren't out, people would walk up to the house and knock on the door. Thankful hikers plucked change, $20 bills, sometimes granola bars, and candy, the children's personal favorite, into the can. The record one day haul was one Memorial Day, about $90. Mighty, mighty hot, not a cloud in the sky. Look at all the people stopping on by. They pay with pennies, nickels, and dimes. And we're all having a juicy good time. The children would constantly invite guests for dinner every night. In playful moments, Shirley and Silas would tell visitors that because they lived in the canyon, they ate stones and dirt and killed wild animals with their bare hands. Bruce and Mary homeschooled the children. Give me a home where I'm taught by my mom, side by side with my sisters all day. 
worth ever is heard a discouraging word I get prayed for then spanked anyway They taught English, math, and science. Bruce said, We got maps and books and other materials and just began teaching them and it went very well. We tried to keep things interesting for the kids. We taught them music and art and we all worked together at learning Spanish. About the three children, Mary said, So far they have done really well when we placed them in school for the winters. Socially, I don't think they've had any problems with the adjustment. Sometimes I think I would like to keep the kids down here forever. Bruce added, This is only going to make them better people. They are learning to understand nature. They are strong from all the exercise. They are intelligent from having to entertain themselves instead of sitting in front of a box. They had it all. Mercy further explained, We had piles and piles of books, and I read and read and read. Nancy drew books, books by Louis Lamar, books like Gone with the Wind. It got to the point where my mom limited me to one book a day. When the children weren't being schooled, they played in the yard, which was any place in the canyon that they could safely reach. At first, the Aikens kept a close eye on the kids, but as time passed, boundaries fell. The kids hit the ground running, barefoot more often than not. They picked a trail and enjoyed both journey and destination. Silas said, We would end up way up on the side of some cliff. We'd look down on the house, see my mom down there, and wave. We'd make our way home when we got hungry. If not, we'd stay out. Silas loved the water. He learned how to catch fish with his bare hands. He'd strike quickly, thrusting his hands into the water and hardly making a splash. He recalled, When I went fishing, I usually came back with dinner. Mercy recalled, I thought our lifestyle was completely normal. I thought everybody got their groceries packed in by meal or flown in by helicopter. I thought it was perfectly normal to get up in the morning, hike up a creek, stop at the swimming hole, and then lie on the rocks looking up at the Grand Canyon. I thought it was normal to sleep out on the heliport every night, listening to the water flow by. When asked if the kids missed out on normal life, Bruce replied, Yeah, but you know, you can't have everything. The kids that lived in town didn't have what my kids had. They had nature, full connection to nature, fabulous free rain. Food arrived regularly for the family, either by rangers or helicopters. Tired hikers carrying too much weight often dropped off protein bars. They rarely had a shortage of granola or trail mix. Mary explained how they shopped. In the beginning, we used to go up to Utah and shop, and then we'd pack it on mules. Then the park service started flying a helicopter all the time, so we would just coordinate with the flight. We'd hike to the north rim, drive to Flagstaff, shop, and then drive to the south rim and wait for the helicopter delivery. Then we drove back to the north rim or hiked down from the south rim. At the very least, it was a two-day affair. Mercy remembered. We spent lots of time exploring the side canyons around our house, but some of the most fun we had was with the hikers who came by our house. Sometimes we would tell the hikers we were living in a commune, or we'd dress up in really weird outfits and act like it was perfectly normal dress for people living in the canyon. 
The children learned a lot from their visitors. They heard about life in Sweden, Germany, South Africa, Australia, and many other countries. Silas later recalled, When people found out about my childhood, they'd always ask, How was it growing up so sheltered? Are you kidding? We didn't have to go out into the world because the world came to us. Bruce's artwork gained attention and continued to evolve. He said, I consider myself very fortunate to be one of the people to live in the canyon. I'm very inspired by it. I walk out on my porch each morning and see the Grand Canyon all around me. I want to share the drama of it. Somewhere along through there, I started to realize that there was more, and this more thing was centered around the water. I felt compelled to study the surface of water. I would say for 15 straight years, that's all I did, focus on water. Once the North Rim shut down every October 15th, the Aikens headed up and usually spent the colder months on the South Rim. The return to civilization allowed them to catch up on everything from neighborhood news to world events. Once the kids flicked on the TV, it was as if they never left. Still, the family always yearned for May 15th and a return home. About 1988, as the children were getting older, it was harder to keep them in the canyon with all the activities that they wished to be involved in. The Aikens decided that the older girls needed to attend public school. They purchased a home at the South Rim and Mary moved up with the kids when school began in the fall. Bruce visited often and joined them in mid-October. When school got out for the summer, they all returned to Roaring Springs. In 1991, Bruce started private art instruction and teaching classes at the community college in Flagstaff. About his art, it was said, Bruce's big claim to fame is the fact that he lives in the Grand Canyon. The canyon belongs to him and no one can touch it quite like him. There are other people that paint the canyon, but Bruce lives it. In 1992, a convicted bank robber, child molester, and suspected murderer, Danny Ray Horning, escaped from Florence State Prison in southern Arizona and went on the run. It resulted in the largest manhunt in Arizona history. He became known as Rambo to his pursuers because of his skill at avoiding capture in the wilderness, achieving folk hero status by the general public following the chase on the news. How you folks doing today? Good. Good? We're looking for an escaped convict. I heard about that. Danny Ray Horny. Yeah, I heard of him. He's like Rambo. Rambo. Don't be calling him Rambo. That's a bunch of crap. Well, this is what I heard. He's just a bum. Horning made his way up to northern Arizona and soon headed toward the Grand Canyon. While the search for Horning could be having an effect on tourism at the Grand Canyon, not surprisingly, Mr. Toronto has been looking into that, and she joins us now from the south rim of the canyon. Well, Heidi, as you can expect, this search is getting a lot of national publicity. It's already been on TV and radio stations across the country. With hostages, he managed to quietly walk into El Tovar Hotel and book a room for the night without attracting attention. Eventually, the authorities caught up with him, shots were fired, and a high-speed chase occurred, going 70 miles per hour towards Hermit Road, where Horning crashed at the gate, but ran into the wilderness and escaped again. The authorities suspected that he ran down into the canyon. For days, search teams canvassed the inner canyon trails. Two hikers on Bright Angel Trail reported seeing a man matching Horning's description walk down the trail. 
Helicopters started to buzz below the south rim into the inner canyon, hovering over major trails. About 120 officers and tracking experts descended. An FBI special weapons and tactics team flew to Phantom Ranch to search. Several teams of FBI agents were stationed on the trails and at black and silver bridges. For several days, the massive search arrived at Roaring Springs. The Aikens saw FBI agents wearing camouflage uniforms carrying high-powered rifles strolling through the front yard in search of warning. Bruce commented, It took nearly 20 years, but modern times finally caught up to Roaring Springs, thanks to that fellow Horning. Mary said, It's been kind of a hassle for me when I've gone up to the rim. There are long lines, searches, guys with guns, hardly the quiet little wilderness hideaway. Days later, after carjacking on the south rim and taking hostages, Horning headed south and was eventually captured at Oak Creek Village near Sedona, Arizona. He had been on the run for seven weeks. He was returned to prison and his four life sentences and later was convicted of murder. In 2020, he was on death row at San Quentin Prison. As the children were flying out of the Roaring Springs coop, Mary was asked about their plans for the future. She said, As soon as the children are settled and gone, I suppose it will be me and Bruce sitting on the front porch, watching our hair grow long and grow white. In 1994, at the age of 21, Mercy Aiken was working as a ranger on the North Rim. She was interviewed about her life growing up in the Grand Canyon. We would read the Bible together so our faith was there more on a daily basis. Because we were so remote, we could not be a part of a regular church. I think it helped me. Religion was more organic and real and part of our everyday life. God has spoken to me a lot through the canyon. In 1996, Silas attended high school on the South Rim and was involved in sports. Two-thirds of the students' parents were employed by the park. Silas, age 18, said, The town is definitely boring for the city kids who move here, but as far as the canyon goes, it's the best part of my life. Quite a few kids get into the canyon, but a lot of them are just like, whatever. They can't see it or understand it. Silas graduated from high school and the Aikens became empty nesters. He went to college in Flagstaff and Mary moved back to Roaring Springs. Bruce displayed his art in many exhibits and gave lectures. I live in an oasis with 500-foot cliffs rising from my backyard and a 20-foot wide river running past my front door. The canyon is a place with unlimited nature and painting it is a never-ending topic. All I have to do here is keep my eyes open and be aware of my surroundings. Whenever I see something that turns me on, I take time to examine it, sketch it, photograph it, and investigate it. After 33 years in 2005, Bruce finally left his home at Roaring Springs for good and retired the next year. He moved to Flagstaff, Arizona. The pumps were upgraded and automated that year and no longer needed a full-time maintenance person. After being away for several years, Bruce and Silas hiked back down to Roaring Springs and found the place that they had lived was sadly unmaintained. The lawn was no longer green and lush, and the house was getting run down. Silas said, It occurred to me that someone needed to be there full time, and that someone needed to be me. He wrote the park superintendent and volunteered for the job, and Silas returned to his childhood home as a volunteer in the park. He said, 
I had such a great memory of the place, and the things I missed the most, and the things I wanted to see the most, were the extra blue of the sky against the red rock. It delivered better than I remembered. I slept outside, in the breeze, and by the sound of the creek. He would later be hired as a ranger and continued to help hikers at his former home. Looking back in 2014, Bruce said, In that period of 33 years living in the canyon, I immersed myself in canyon, uh, light, the natural elements, the ambiances of seasonal changes, weather events, storms, all of that stuff all came into me uh, creatively and it has been uh, turned back out in my paintings. In 2016, Silas was married with two children, living in Flagstaff and still working part-time as a ranger in the canyon. He said in an interview, I was so lucky to grow up where I did. You can't have an upbringing like I did and not be a spiritual person. It gave me an appreciation of nature, an appreciation of God. It's like the Grand Canyon was like a finger of God. Bruce ran his gallery in downtown Flagstaff and taught art full-time at Northern Arizona University, and Mary was retired. I miss it terribly. Mercy was a Christian missionary at Bethlehem Bible College in Israel. I'll live in other places, but the Grand Canyon is the only home I'll ever have. The canyon was the center of my everyday life, not just a place to visit and take pictures. It's my wish that people can have life-touching experiences here for a long time. Years later, Shirley recalled, Our parents tried really hard to give us a natural, normal upbringing with a schedule and a routine, making sure we had social contact by inviting people down. We had friends coming down and friends of friends and cousins. People expected that I grew up socially awkward as if I lived in a cave. In fact, it was the opposite. Shirley also became an artist, had two children, and owned a spa treatment business in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In 2019, on the 100th anniversary of Grand Canyon National Park, Bruce wrote, Over the years, I have spent thousands and thousands of days below the rim, using the trails, climbing and just scrambling, looking for the best angles and light, seasonal events and storms of all kinds in places hard to get to for the typical visitor. All this to enhance my work and paintings. Today I honor Grand Canyon National Park, founded 100 years ago today, the place where I lived for 33 years and found my true artistic voice. Stay tuned for part five and the story of the races rim to rim that were held for many years in the canyon. With that, this is Davy Crockett, and this is the Ultra Running History Podcast. I hope you run fast and far, enjoy life, get outdoors, 
and most of all, stay safe and don't take unnecessary chances.